This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. So you've just been listening to an Antarctic summer soundscape, which was recorded by a team member for one of the papers that we are interviewing my guest about today. So today I have Jack Devlin with me. He is the lead author of a paper entitled Simulated Winter Warming Negatively Impacts Survival of Antarctica's Only Endemic Insect. So before we get into the paper, I'd just like to ask Jack to tell us a little bit about yourself and what are your research interests? Well, thanks very much for that. Uh, yeah, I'm Jack Devlin. Um, I am uh, from Mid Wales, rural Mid Wales, uh, but PhD wise, I call Kentucky my home. Um, and yeah, I'm, I probably describe myself as a bit of a general interest ecologist. Um, I did my master's uh, with a focus on entomology, looking at how pheasants might impact them in the rural Welsh landscape. Um, but I, uh, I moved into Antarctic invertebrates, uh, funny enough, through Twitter, as is often the case these days. Um, I was mindlessly scrolling on one day as my master's was drawing to an end, and up popped a tweet from a certain uh, Dr. Nicholas Teets saying, do you want to do fieldwork in Antarctica? Are you interested in the ecophysiology of Antarctica's only endemic insect? And I thought, yeah, I am. Yeah, the first bit especially, you know, why not? Um, and yeah, that led me to apply, uh, interview, funny enough, had the interview, um, after I'd just come back from the Azores where I was working on a seabird project, uh, on a tiny remote Island with two other people for a month. Um, so when I was back into, uh, well, normal life in inverted commas, uh, yeah, I decided afterwards, yep, yeah, I'm definitely going to go for this, had the interview and, uh, as they say, the rest is history. Um, but yeah, this this is my third year of my PhD now. So getting to the stage where things start to come together and I start to publish different works. Um, and so, yeah, this is my first chapter, uh, which has been very well received. I'm very happy about it. Um, and was really quite a, a challenging paper in a lot, of, uh, a lot of reasons why, because, well, the COVID pandemic happened. Um, we were incredibly lucky. I I didn't actually go to Antarctica in 2020, but we had a dedicated field team out there collecting for a number of different studies, including mine. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and they effectively had to run away as quickly as possible. Uh, caught the last flight back from Chile and got back to the US. Um, and so I was incredibly lucky to even have any images to work on. Um, and of course, the university then shut down. So I had to, was given special permission to start this experiment, which we'll go into in more detail. And then effectively, uh, I wasn't allowed to look at it for a while um, until things had calmed down. So, yeah, that, that especially made it more difficult. But I'm really pleased with how the study has uh, turned out and we'll discuss it more in detail. Perfect. So if you can ex excuse the pun. You're, uh, in an ecological sense, a bit of a jack of all trades. You've got lots of different research interests. Um, so I'd just like to ask, uh, what kind of advice might you have for any other budding ecologist? You're a young, uh, early career researcher. You know, what tips can you have to keep people 
interested and focused on completing their PhDs and research. I would say do what you're interested in for a start. Um, I think there's a tendency for a lot of young researchers to just not do what they're told, but to be guided um, necessarily towards things they might not be as interested in. Um, I'm incredibly lucky that my supervisor, Dr. Nick Teets, shameless plug there, uh, has been incredibly flexible in uh, letting me do what I'm interested in. Um, This study was a big risk, uh, you know, putting things in for six months and then not looking at them is, you know, a big risk if it all goes wrong. But no, I would say that I probably, to sum that up, actually, is to have the best supervisor you can find. Really take your time to find someone who's not just a supervisor, but is a mentor, um, who will actually let you have that freedom, but also be able to give you the support that you need. Um, when it comes to writing a thesis, uh, well, I'm not quite at the, um, the horrible stage yet, uh, but I would say just try and do a little bit every day. You know, try and just do a little bit of writing, you know, make a figure here and there. Um, as long as you keep it ticking over, it shouldn't build up into something horrible. But maybe ask me again in a year and I might give you a completely <laughs> different answer. Perfect. Thank you. And the last thing I wanted to ask is, you know, you grew up in Mid Wales. So, you know, the Brecon Beacons right on your doorstep. Was that sort of gateway into ecology for you? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um, I went to Cardiff for both my undergraduate and my master's um, and was very lucky to meet um, some really quite passionate ecologists. Um, One of them, funny enough, grew up around this area as well. Um, But for me, it was really just trying to get myself to stand out. Um, I was lucky enough to do field work um, on seabirds in Portugal um, in the two years of my undergraduate so it's, it's re- it was really for me just getting out there, making sure people knew who I was and trying to back that up with good grades, I suppose. Um, but yeah, no, I've always been interested in nature. I'm incredibly lucky. My parents live in super rural mid Wales. So, you know, you can go outside and see, you know, some rare animals. And I suppose, you know, being a kid, I was always just down at the pond every single day, rain, whatever there may be. So, yeah, to sort of come full circle and actually, you know, be able to do this as a job is somewhat of a dream, I suppose. Perfect. Thank you. So I'll ask about the paper now. You were investigating simulated warming effects on the Antarctic midge or Belgica Antarctica. Um, Can you tell us in plain terms about the novelty of your paper? What does your study contribute to the understanding of the impact of warming on Antarctica's only endemic insect? Yeah, the, uh, the study in itself is novel because it's the only study that's actually tried to do an overwintering, uh, a simulated overwintering period. Um, for Belgica specifically, the longest uh, previous overwin- overwintering period we looked at was about 32 days. Um, but we found that even at minus five degrees centigrade, the larvae were surviving that completely fine. Now the Antarctic winter, we know it's changing. There's climate changes occurring in the region, um, Belgica, to give you a bit of context, is distributed along the peninsula. So that's the more sort of northerly region of the Antarctic, um, where conditions are, in quotation marks, more mild. Um, but we really we know that it's warming during the winters. Uh, we know, you know, it's about half a degree centigrade per decade since about 1950. So it's warming. But that might not mean that everything's just going to get warmer every single year. There's, of course, going to be variability. 
in each winter. So this study, we really wanted to investigate what are the temperatures of winter to begin with from data that we've got from the field. And then around that sort of mean, well, specifically, we our mean was minus three degrees centigrade. And then we had what would class as a very warm winter at minus one, and then a colder winter at minus five. And we really just wanted to have a look at a full six month investigation into how the larvae would survive. But it was a really big unknown. We know in the field that they can tolerate it, but we don't know exactly what those temperatures may be. And uh, this was the more straightforward way based on the equipment we had to be able to investigate this. So I just want to ask quickly um, about the Antarctic midge. What is it about its sort of physiology? How, do, how does it adapt? How has it adapted to surviving in such a hostile environment? Well, we know that the Antarctic midge has been on Antarctica for a good few million years. Um, it's been separated from its uh, closest living South American relative for over 50 million years. Um, so we know it's a highly adapted endemic species to what is arguably the most challenging environment on Earth for a, an insect to live on, that's for sure. I mean, it's easy enough to just think, oh, Antarctica, it must be very cold. But we need to think about the fact that we've, yes, we've got the cold temperatures, but we can also have a lot of uh, UV radiation. There are incredibly strong winds there. You've got the risk of drying out. It's a severe risk for any insect living in Ant uh, Antarctica or a cold location. But we've also got things like salinity. So in the sort of storms that we can have, we can have larvae being submerged in saltwater pools. It's really not the easiest environment to live in for, for any animal. But the Antarctic midge really has adapted over time. If we think about the cold temperatures, we know that the larvae take around two years to reach adulthood, which for something that small is a ridiculous amount of time. If we compare it to more sort of temperate living midges, they can do a generation in a summer quite easily. But for the Antarctic midge, they've got to go through two winters before they can then emerge as an adult. And you might think, oh, well, if they have done all that work emerging as an adult, they must live a fantastic life. But unfortunately, they emerge, they live 10 days, they don't eat, and they breed, and then there's the mass die-off. But, um, you know, it's an incredibly challenging environment, but these animals have been really highly adapted to it. And for anyone who's interested, I'd recommend going and reading uh, the work that my supervisor did. So Dr. Nick Teets, um, along with uh, another great um, sort of physiologist, Yuta Karawazaki. Uh, those two really did some fantastic work, you know, now and a few years ago, uh, looking at the ecophysiology of the midge. And we, we know they're just really tough animals that can tolerate a lot more than, you know, your more temperate ones can. Perfect. Thank you. And for the last part of this section of the question, um, so you measured a range of physiological outcomes, right? Survival, movement ability, damage to organs, etc. Um, can you tell the listeners a few takeaway results, a few things that surprised you or things that you expected? What were the outcomes of this study? So we found that were warmer winters, so that's our winter at minus one, uh, we found that survival, energy stores, and locomotor activity, so that's just movement speed, were all significantly lower. Um, so that sort of shows us that there might be this idea of energy drain. So not only are the animals dying before the winter's even through, but those that are surviving are going to be a bit more sluggish. They might not have this you know, uh, ability to move as quickly to a food source. And then to add to that, 
we used um, late star, uh, late instar larvae that are um, going to pupate after they've emerged from the winter. And we know that they have limited time before they're able to pupate. So there may be few feeding opportunities anyway. So if you're emerging out of a six month winter with lower protein and lipid stores, then you're going to have less of a chance to successfully pupate and emerge as an adult. And let's say you are able to emerge as an adult, you're, if you have lower uh, protein stores particularly, then your reproductive output might actually be lower. So that has implications for not only the animals that go through the winter, but the generation after that. Um, those were sort of expected, to be honest with you. We know that you know if you give an animal that hasn't got a chance to move around and eat, you put it into higher temperatures, it's going to have to use those energy stores. But one result that we had, which was really out of the blue for us, was to the extent at which larvae did not like being overwintered on the Praseola crispa algae. Now, for a bit of context, this algae is everywhere in low-lying regions of peninsular Antarctica. We know it's a fantastic food source for the midge. Uh, in field work, you can go and you'll see these big mats of this algae spread across rocks. And if you lift it up, there'll be midges underneath there, that's for sure. But we did not expect for them to uh, survive so poorly on it. So for um, midges who went through the warm winter that were overwintered on this algae, none of them survived, which is crazy. Um, we did not expect that at all. And we're not really sure why they did so poorly. Um, we know that um, this algae can uh, release what's called phytosterols, which are toxic to the Drosophila melagaster, sort of fruit fly. We know Belgica eats it all the time in the field. So perhaps just being in close contact to it and not being able to move away um, when it releases these harmful chemicals is the reason for the decline uh, in survivability. But it needs something, something that we need to investigate further. But very, very unexpected, that's for sure. Wow, yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I think the last part that I want to ask you about is I don't want to steal thunder from your thesis and future chapters of your work, but uh, you've done this study now. And where do you hope the direction to be moving towards? What's the what's what's the next goal? What's the you know where do you want the research to open up to? Yeah, well, in a lot of cases with papers like this that try to answer these big questions, you end up just asking more questions. Mm -hmm. um, so in this case, one point that we tried to make in the paper very clearly is that, well, yes, this is the results we see after six months, but a warmer winter might actually reduce that length of the winter. Or indeed, a warmer winter may cause there to be uh, harsher conditions and what we call the shoulder seasons, so before and after the winter. So we really don't want this to be the, uh, oh, yes, look, it's warmer and therefore it's worse for these midges. Oh, no, they're all going to go extinct. It's what we're trying to show here is that this is going to open this up to more questions particularly looking at temperature variability. That could be a big thing that we need to investigate and trying to determine, is it the length of the winter? Is it the temperature? Or is it to the, the degree to which the temperature varies that are the driving forces behind this midge survival? Um, we know that the midges are found in a wide variety of different microhabitats and they're distributed across a 600 mile range. So it's not going to be the case that every midge is experiencing between minus one and minus five for six months. We know there's a lot of variability, but this is the case that we can definitely now start to hone in on the minutia of what's actually driving these results. 
Um, but unfortunately for my thesis, I won't be working on that. Um, I, in classic uh, sort of science discovery, um, I'm interested in um, looking at the summer conditions from a transcriptomal response. I talked before about how these midges can be exposed to lots of different stresses. So I'm going to be looking at how they uh, they respond to sublethal stresses of temperature, of salinity, of um, desiccation, that kind of thing. And as my other chapter, um, I'm going to be looking at whether we can detect microplastics within these midges and uh, also seeing if we can detect a physiological response if we expose them to microplastics at levels that we might see in the field. But uh, yes, that's that's all uh, hope. That's all, I suppose, reliant on me getting to Antarctica, uh, which I'm hoping to do next year. So fingers, toes and everything else crossed. And uh, <laughs> I might have something exciting to update you with uh, in a, a year or so. Yeah, perfect. Well, fingers, toes, everything else crossed will be very cold as well, <laughs> I'm sure, when you do eventually get down there. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, and I'm going to ask you to sort of get your magic ball out now which is probably the least favorite thing for a scientist to have to do. Um, but I want to ask what the future, based on the data that we know and based on the data that you've, um, that you've discovered, what does the future look like at present for invertebrates? But you can talk about other organisms as well in Antarctica. Can you describe sort of different visions of the future? And one other thing I wanted to also wanted you to touch on as well is, is there any impact from the Antarctic midge um, decreasing in species number? Do they have natural predators? Is there a threat of a kind of ecosystem chain collapse or anything like that if we were to lose Antarctic midges? Yeah, if I work backwards from that then. Um, mm -hmm. So we know the Antarctic midge can be incredibly uh, numerous. We can find up to about 40,000 per square metre. Um, but then you can go a few metres and then find none. So it's a really patchy distribution, but there is a lot of them. Um, but we haven't found any natural predators, especially of the uh, the larger larvae. They might be eaten when they're just hatched out of the egg, but we haven't found anything that I know of anyway. Um, mm -hmm. But as I say, they're incredibly numerous and they are the largest animal to actually live in Antarctica all year round. And at five millimeters and one milligram in weight, that's uh, not very big, but still, they, if you combine that with their biology, they are a generalist detritivore. So in simple terms, anything that's rotting or breaking down, dead animals, you know, dead um, organic material, any kind of things like that, they're going to be incredibly important for nutrient cycling. Um, so in Antarctica, it's a very, very simple ecosystem where it's only represented by a few dozen up to a hundred species um, of invertebrate in total. Um, so if we're looking at the importance of Belgica, it's the largest, it can be very numerous. Does it have that impact on nutrient cycling that we can measure? Yes, very likely. We haven't done that yet to my knowledge anyway. Um, but if there were to be a contraction in population size as a result of let's say winter warming, then you would be able to see a decrease in uh, nutrient cycling in Antarctica. Um, what the future looks like for these animals and the community in general is, well, it's very unsure. You'd, uh, you could 
you know, be forgiven for reading my paper and think, oh, well, it's getting warmer. It must be bad for them all. They're all going to go extinct. Oh, no. But that probably isn't the case. We've got animals that are very highly adapted to very cold conditions, but we know, particularly for some animals, that they can tolerate higher temperatures. So as I led to before, if we've got these reduced winters that are warmer, so a reduced length winter, I should say, then they might be able to cope with that and be able to then, you know, as we go through uh, a selection event for these animals that can survive them better, we might be able to see more of this flexibility. Um, the warmer temperatures, if it does continue to warm in this uh, to this degree, we will see an increased risk of invasive species colonization, which can have impacts uh, for the ecosystem. You've got incredibly highly adapted animals that have been there for millions of years to then have either sort of uh, invasive species that get there naturally or introduced by people. They can have implications, especially if they're able to survive uh, a less harsh Antarctic winter. But we're still very early stages in that in terms of in determining that invasion risk and indeed determining how the invertebrates as a whole will deal with climate change as we continue through. Um, so that's my uh, that's my scientist way of looking at it, <laughs> where I don't commit to saying anything. No. Yeah. Perfect. Well, thank you. Um, so just to finish up, I'd like to let everyone know that a link to the paper will be provided in the description. We will also include a transcript um, of this interview for anyone that would like to read it. Uh, I would highly recommend reading the paper itself. It's attracting a lot of interest, getting picked up by lots of different news sources. It's a fascinating paper, and I am very grateful for Jack for making the time to be here. So just as we finish up, I'd like to give Jack the opportunity to, I know you've spoken about the influence of Nick Teets on the um, on your research and how helpful he's been. Um, is there anyone else you'd like to give a shout out to? Is there any message you want to give to our listeners? Any take home? Just, you know, underline this is, this is what you need to know. Yeah, thanks. Well, there, I'd like to actually uh, thank every single one of my co-authors. Um, to give a bit more context in the sort of COVID difficulties, I actually got stuck back in the UK um, over the summer of 2020 and was unable to get back in time for my experiment finishing. Um, so I was actually incredibly lucky to have um, PhD students and postdocs. So the PhDs were Laura Unfried uh, and then Eleanor McCabe and the postdoc was uh, Melissa Lachetta. They were able to actually get my experiments, uh, get them out of the incubators, uh, the midges out of the incubators and actually do the first initial, um, you know, how many have survived, and then also looking at locomotion and the, um, the mid-gut cell survival. So I would not have been able to do that without them. Uh, this was really a team effort. It's, it's easy to sort of look at the first author and go, oh, they did everything. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. But this was completely a team effort. Um, and couldn't have done it without them. And then also to the other co-authors, so that's uh, J.D. Gantz, Yuta Kawarazaki, Mike Alnitsky, Scott Hotelling, Andrew Michael, Peter Convey, uh, Scott Hayward, and Nick Teets, of course. This, they've been absolutely brilliant in advising me, trying to guide the paper with their expertise. And really, I'm just really proud to have been able to collaborate with people who I've read their work, you know, for the last two years and go, oh yeah, okay, so that's what they look like. Or, you know, they're fantastic. Um, and hopefully I can put out a few more papers that are, get this sort of response because it's been a really fun experience. Perfect, thank you. Well, I hope the listeners have enjoyed um, 
our discussion about this. Just to remind you all, the paper is available in the description of this podcast episode. Um, thank you very much for your time, Jack. It's been great chatting to you. Brilliant. Thanks very much indeed.